thanks for your company. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and this is The Bible Teaches. We are continuing the search for certainty with Pastor Danny Malenkov. This is the 11th program in the series. Hello, Danny. G'day, Barry. What's our topic today? Well, today's topic is entitled Expect the Unexpected. This is a really important topic because we have to understand the Antichrist if we are to understand how things work out around the time prior to Jesus coming the second time. So everyone needs to know this information. For some people, the information might be unwelcome and very sensitive, and uh, we appreciate that that's the case, but we feel in the public interest that we need to put this information into the public domain. Well, you're right, Barry. Um, There are those that may feel a little uncomfortable um, with the information that will be shared. I'm praying that I will share it in a very sensitive, loving and kind way. I believe in sharing the truth in love, but the truth does need to be shared. Um, This is an important topic because it is part of the three angels' messages. In Revelation 14, verses 6 to 12, we have the three angels' messages, and the identity of the Antichrist is given there. Um, So it's part of the everlasting gospel that needs to go to all the world before Jesus comes. And the identity is not given to offend. It's there to help us to make the right choice, isn't it? That's right. The, The ultimate aim at the end is to give people the information they need in order that they may make an informed choice as to who they will worship. Will they worship the Lamb, Jesus Christ, or will they worship um, the one who opposes the Lamb, who ultimately is Satan? And we'll discover that the Antichrist is this power that the enemy has chosen to work through. All the best as you do your presentation today, Danny. Thank you, Barry. Welcome to the Search for Certainty series. Today, our subject is entitled, Expect the Unexpected. In a previous presentation, we have discovered that Lucifer, who was the chief angel that God created, the leader of the angels, at the long, long time ago, he rebelled against God for the simple reason that he wanted worship. The Bible says that he sought to be just like God, to be worshipped just like God. And so the rebellion began. When Jesus was here on this earth 2,000 years ago, you may recall that Satan came in the form of an angel and he tempted Christ three times. One of those temptations was, if you will bow down to me and worship me, I will give to you all the kingdoms of this world. Jesus made it very clear that there is only one to be worshipped. And he made it clear to the devil and he said to him that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Ever since the fall, ever since the war in heaven began, the chief aim of the enemy has been worship. He has sought worship, worship that belongs to God and God alone. The Bible tells us how the enemy, Satan, will seek to deceive the whole world into worshipping him one final time before Jesus comes. Expect the unexpected. If you have a Bible handy, if you're listening to this message at home, I'd encourage you to take your Bible right now and follow along as best as you can to the scriptures that we will unpack together. So before we begin and open up God's word, as always, we need to pray. So let's just pause and pray for a moment. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us the truth. You have told us 
that we will know the truth provided we abide in your word. We will know the truth and the beautiful truth, your word, will set us free. So today, Father, once again, we pray that as we open up your word, open up our hearts and our minds that we may be able to receive the truths of Jesus for our heart's desire is to worship Jesus Christ alone. For this is our prayer in his name. Amen. Well, we want to begin by turning to the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Now in Revelation chapter 1, right there at the very beginning in verse 3, we have this beautiful promise that God gives to all those that will take time to read the book of Revelation. Notice what it says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed is he, or the word blessed there can also be translated happy, Blessed or happy is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Notice God here points out there is a wonderful blessing for all those who are willing to firstly read the book of Revelation, those who are willing to hear the words that are spoken in the book of Revelation, and those that are willing to keep those things that are written in it. In other words, to obey, in other words, to hold on to the things that are written in the book of Revelation. This, my friend, is the only book of the Bible that I'm aware of where at the very beginning there is a blessing given to all those that will read, study, and keep the things that are written in the book. So it's an incredibly important book. And the book, Revelation itself, uh, the word revelation, it's a revealing, it's, it's, it's an unveiling. That's what the word means. And so God here wants to reveal to us his beautiful truths. But at the same time, the book of Revelation is given to us to reveal or to unveil the devil's deceptions. That's right. The devil's deceptions. We want to go to the heart of the book of Revelation today where God gives one of the most powerful warnings in all of the Bible. This is considered by many scholars to be the most powerful, sober warning that God has given, and it's especially for those who are living at the end of time. It's found in Revelation chapter 14, and um, it is part of the three angels' messages, which we've discovered earlier in an earlier presentation. This is the everlasting gospel that must go to all the world. Jesus said, you remember in Matthew 24, that, that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. And here we have the gospel in an end-time context in Revelation 14 re, uh, referred to by John as the everlasting gospel. So the third angel's message in Revelation 14 verses 9 to 11 reads, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Verse 11, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now notice, God here has a very, very strong warning to the whole world. And the warning is, do not under any circumstances worship this beast power. 
worship the image of the beast or receive his mark on he on your forehead or on your hand. Now, who is this beast power? Now, this beast power is also known as the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. Now, why is this so important? Well, notice what it says in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 4. Speaking of this beast power, now you're thinking, uh, what kind of beast power is this? Well, we'll discover that a beast in Bible prophecy represents a kingdom, a nation, or a, or a religio-political power, a, a, a power that the Bible describes. That's what a beast represents. The Bible says in Revelation 13 verse 4, So they worshipped the dragon. And who's the dragon? That's right. The dragon is the devil. That's what we're told in Revelation 12. The dragon is a symbol for the devil. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, he, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So notice, those at the end of time that worship the beast are actually worshipping the dragon, Satan. So the beast or this power that we will discover who this power is in a little bit, is simply the front man for Satan. Satan has never, ever sought to work out in the open. He always works in the dark shadows. He always works behind the scenes. You'll remember at the very beginning of time, how did Satan tempt Eve? Did he come straight out as an angel and tempter? No, he tempted her via the serpent. He used the serpent as his front man in the Garden of Eden. And at the end of time, he uses this beast power. And through this beast power, he receives what he so desperately wants, and that is worship. Worship is the key issue in the book of Revelation. Over and over again, the word worship or worshiping or worshipped or worships appears over and over again. In fact, in Revelation 13, 14, chapter 13 and 14, these two chapters that we'll be studying, the word worship appears eight times, seven times in reference to this beast power, this antichrist power, and once in relation to God and worshiping him. So where do we find a description of this beast power? Notice what the Bible says in Revelation 13, 1 and 2, where Revelation describes this beast power. Then I stood, writes John, on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now here is this beast that is described partly of leopard, partly made up of a bear, partly made up of a lion. Now, a very strange-looking beast with seven heads and ten horns. Now, the average person would be thinking, what on earth is this beast? It's not certainly a beast that you bump into when you go down to your local zoo, is it? When we take a look at these animals, we discover that these same animals are referred to in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, they are twins. They are like a hand in a glove. They complement one another. When you don't understand something in Revelation, go to the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, there is a good chance that the explanation will be made a lot more complete. 
Likewise, if you don't understand something in Daniel, go to the book of Revelation and there you'll find more details. The two books complement one another. So in order to discover who this beast is, let's go to the book of Daniel together. Let's go to the book of Daniel where these three animals, do you remember what those three animals were? That's right. They were a lion, a bear, and a leopard. Okay. Where these three animals appear. Now, We've been to Daniel before. We discovered in Daniel chapter 2 that God there gave um, King Nebuchadnezzar that incredible dream of the history of the world from King King Nebuchadnezzar's day, two and a half thousand years ago, all the way through to the very end when Jesus would come, when that stone that was cut out without hands would come and would smite the image on the on the toes made up of iron and clay, that that stone that would represent the second coming of Jesus. So from the time of Nebuchadnezzar all the way through to the second coming of Jesus was that incredible prophecy given in Daniel chapter 2. Well, when we go to Daniel chapter 7, we discover that those same kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then divided Rome are represented But this time, not through metals, as in Daniel 2, but this time through animals. So let's take a look at Daniel chapter 7 and notice these animals that we have just read of in Revelation chapter 13. In Daniel 7, and I'll only be brief, I'll only touch the highlights because we don't have time in this presentation to go through all the text. But beginning in verse 1, Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Verse 2, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. In other words, that's a a symbol for, for war and conflict and upheaval taking place. Verse 3, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now, a beast in Bible prophecy, you can read it in verse 17 and verse 23 of Daniel 7, represents a king or a kingdom, a nation. Verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Drop down to verse 5, and suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. Then Daniel says in verse 6, after this I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And this leopard had four heads. Then in verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And a horn according to verse 24, represents a king or a kingdom. So a beast represents a king or a kingdom and a horn represents a king or a kingdom. So these are the symbols that the Bible uses. Now, we're familiar with animals representing kingdoms because if I asked you, what does a kangaroo on a flag represent, and you'll tell me that it represents Australia, or what does a a bald eagle on a flag represent, and you'll tell me the United States, or a kiwi bird on a flag represent New Zealand. And so nations today are represented by animals. So too here God is representing nations with animals, and we have the lion 
I'd love to go into all the details with you, but we don't have time. The lion represents Babylon. We have the bear representing Medo-Persia. We have the leopard with four heads representing Greece after Alexander the Great. His kingdom was divided into four amongst his four leading generals. Then we have this fourth dreadful beast that has iron teeth. And that reminds us of the iron legs that represented Rome in Daniel chapter 2. So we have Rome coming onto the scene. And then this beast is described as having 10 horns. And a horn represents a kingdom. And we know from history that once Rome fell, it was divided amongst 10 kingdoms or 10 nations. Now let's go to verse 8. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8. Notice what verse 8 tells us. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now here Daniel is describing this Antichrist power. Daniel here is describing this same power that in Revelation 13 verses 1 and 2 is spoken of as this beast power. This beast power that is made up of a leopard, a lion, and a bear. It has seven horns, sorry, it has seven heads and ten horns. When we take a look at these beasts in Daniel 7, they have a combined total of seven heads. They have a combined total of ten horns. And so here we have this description of this antichrist power. Now, who is this antichrist power? The Bible here has given us five, at least five. There are, in fact, six, but we don't have time to look at all six. We'll take a look at five identification marks that describe this Antichrist power in verse 8. We'll also take a look at a couple of others in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 7. So let's take a look at seven identification marks of this Antichrist kingdom. And that's what a horn is. A horn represents a king or a kingdom. Seven identification marks that will tell us who this Antichrist power is. Who is this power that Satan will use as his front man in order to gain worship, in order to deceive the entire world into worshiping him at the end of time? You and I, we want to remain undeceived. Isn't that right? We want to remain true to Jesus Christ. And in fact, if you go home um, or if you are at home and you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, there you'll discover the Apostle Paul speaks of the Antichrist power coming into the church. And he speaks of, of this power as the man of sin, the son of perdition. The son of perdition is a term that Jesus used to describe Judas and his work that he would do behind the scenes. So this power we are told by the Apostle Paul, is to be expected amongst God's people. And that's not something we expect. That's why I've, I've entitled this message, Expect the Unexpected. Everyone is looking for this Antichrist power to be from without. 
Many think that this power is um, some uh, leader in the world. Some have even said one of the presidents of the United States of America. Some have said the Antichrist power is um, Islam. Some have said the Antichrist power is um, some individual that will arise in Western Europe. Um, Some have said that it's a computer Many have come up with all sorts of different ideas and theories of who this Antichrist power is of Bible prophecy. And today, with the Internet, there are hundreds and possibly thousands of different views as to who this Antichrist power is that the Bible describes. And there's total confusion, absolutely total confusion. Our only The only way that you and I can know the truth is to go back to the Bible, to discover what the Bible has to say, and the Bible makes it clear. And we're going to simply put the pieces of this puzzle together. Some of you may enjoy jigsaw puzzles. I'm not the keenest fan of big jigsaw puzzles. I like little ones of about 20 pieces. They're quite easy to put together, but uh, these ones that are 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 or more, uh, that'd be a nightmare. But we're going to put together this jigsaw puzzle, and we only have seven pieces to put together today. So let's take a look at these seven identification marks that we find in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. The first one, this power, this kingdom, would come up amongst the ten kingdoms there in Western Europe. Notice what it says in verse 8. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them. Okay, now here Daniel is describing this horn or this kingdom coming up from among the ten kingdoms that took over from the Roman Empire, and we know that that took place in Western Europe. So we need to look for this power in Western Europe. The second identification mark, or the second piece of the puzzle, the Bible says this power would come up after the ten kingdoms are already established. How do we know that? Well, the very first words of verse 8, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn. So Daniel is considering these ten horns that have already come up. So we need to look for a power that comes up sometime after 476 AD. You see, between 351 and 476 AD is when historians tell us the Roman Empire was divided amongst uh, amongst those 10 nations that took over from where the Roman Empire left off. Thirdly, the Bible tells us it would be a small Western European kingdom. How do we know that? Well, Daniel says, I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one. God gives us details here for a reason. God is telling us we need to look for a little or a small kingdom, a small yet very, very powerful kingdom, as we'll discover. Fourthly, the fourth identification mark, this little horn power would uproot three kingdoms. We're told that in verse 8, it says, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. Notice, by the roots. In other words, three kingdoms would be extinct as a result of this power coming up. It would push out Three other kingdoms. There were three kingdoms that were taken out of the way. 
historians tell us that the Ostrogoths, the Heruli, and the Vandals, you will no longer find any trace of them in Western Europe today. They are now extinct. The other seven kingdoms are still with us to this day. Identification number five. It would speak blasphemy against God. It says at the end of verse 8, it would have a mouth speaking pompous words. On several other occasions, on two other occasions in Daniel chapter 7, we are told that this uh, power would speak blasphemies or would speak pompous words against the Most High. And that's what the word pompous means. It means blasphemy. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1, we are told, and we read these words earlier, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea and on his heads a blasphemous name. In verse 5 and verse 6, three more times, John describes this power as a blasphemous power. Seven times in total in Daniel 7 and Revelation 13, this power is described as a blasphemous power. Now, that's important. When God emphasizes a point seven times in two chapters, he wants us to sit up and take notice, for this is extremely important. Now, according to the Bible, what is blasphemy? We need to find out what the Bible has to say. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, John describes on one occasion when Jesus made an incredible claim. Notice what Jesus said. I and my Father are one. Jesus claimed to be one with his Father. Notice what takes place next in verse 31 of John chapter 10. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? And notice the response of the Jewish leaders. Verse 33 of John chapter 10. The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. So the Jews made it clear to Jesus that they would stone him because he claimed to be God. Now, of course, the Bible's very clear. Jesus was God on earth. Jesus was God in human flesh. The Bible's very clear. And the word was God, and the Word dwelt in human flesh. John chapter 1 is absolutely crystal clear that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God. But the Jewish leaders didn't believe that He was indeed the Son of God, and so they wanted to stone Him because they believed that He committed blasphemy in claiming to be God. So according to the Bible, blasphemy is making oneself equal to God. What else is blasphemy according to Scripture? We always must let Scripture define the truth. No point in me saying this is what I think blasphemy is or asking you what you think blasphemy is. The Bible will make it clear what blasphemy is. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 20, the Bible says, when he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Notice, 
To claim the power and authority to forgive sins is blasphemy, unless, unless you are God. God alone has the power and the authority and the prerogative to forgive your sins. If an individual or individuals, an earthly power, if an earthly power claims to be able to forgive sins, that is blasphemy according to Scripture. Notice what it says in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. We want to take a look at two more identification marks. Thus far, we've already looked at five, and there are many more. There are, there are up to 20 identification marks of this Antichrist power that are given to us, not only in Daniel and in Revelation, but in, in, in 2 Thessalonians and in First and Second John, where he speaks of this Antichrist power. But today we only have time for seven. Notice what Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25 says regarding this Antichrist power. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half a time. Let's take a look at two points out of this scripture that is pregnant with with so much meaning. Firstly, this power shall persecute the saints of the Most High. This little horn or this beast, this Antichrist power shall persecute God's people. The next point we want to make note of, the seventh and the final, and shall intend to change times and law or think to change God's law. So this power will seek to tamper with God's Ten Commandment law. What did Jesus say regarding the Ten Commandments? In Luke chapter 16 and verse 17, Jesus said his words, And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. As far as Jesus was concerned, the law, the Ten Commandment law that he himself wrote with his very own finger and gave it to Moses, is to last forever, forever. Yet this power, the Bible tells us, would seek to change and tamper with God's law. Who is this power? We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to discover who is this little horn power that Daniel describes, that Revelation describes as this beast power, this all-important truth when we come back. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3ABN Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc., PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. 
Welcome back, my friends. Well, it's time to reveal who this Antichrist power is. We're finished off with the, with the question of Daniel that he posed in Daniel chapter 7, asking God for the truth regarding this little horn power that spoke pompous words. He wanted to know the truth. He wanted to know who this power was so that he could remain true to God and worship God and God alone and remain undeceived. You see, the only way, my friend, to remain undeceived is to know the truth. There is only one truth, and the Bible tells us that the Bible is the truth. John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. Our only safety and security is found in God's unfailing word, his precious truth, the precious truth that sets us free, sets us free from the various and the many deceptions of the enemy. Well, who is this power? Before I share with you who this power is that the Bible so clearly identifies, in particular in the books of Daniel and Revelation, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and First and Second John, I do need to make it very clear that God is a God of love. God is not a God who is seeking to embarrass, who is seeking to hurt people. God is not a God who destroys. God is a God who saves. When God describes these powers, he is describing systems, not people. God is describing for us here systems and powers that seek to oppose his truth, his precious truth that sets us free from the enemy's deceptions. So the very first thing I want you to know, my friends, is that God is describing a system, not individual people that belong to this system. Just because I'm an Australian, I am not one that agrees with the terrible way the, the Aboriginal or the Indigenous people of Australia were treated by the Europeans when they first settled Australia just over 200 years ago. I'm an Australian. I was born here in this country. But I'm not proud of the way my European ancestors that came to this country treated the Indigenous people. Also, those who are Germans, those who are Germans do not condone in any way the acts of Hitler and the Nazi party and the atrocities that they committed, in particular, the extermination of more than six million Jews. So as we take a look at this power, we need to remember that God here is identifying a system. He is not identifying individual people. Well, who is this power? This power is none other than the Roman church state. That's right, the Roman Catholic Church or the Roman papacy. Now, you may be thinking, impossible, Danny, impossible. How could this system be a church? Well, you remember what the Apostle Paul told us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We didn't get an opportunity to read those words, but you can read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where the Apostle Paul speaks of this power, this man of sin, 
this son of perdition that would come up amongst the people of God, would sit in the temple of God claiming to be God. So is this indeed the Roman church state? This church that has more than one billion members or more than one billion individuals that claim to be Roman Catholic. Once again, my friend, please, please, this is so important. God here is not speaking against the people that are part of the Roman Catholic Church. There are many, hundreds, thousands, millions, only God knows how many there are, but there are sincere Roman Catholic men and women all around the world who love God with all of their heart and who are worshipping God in spirit and in truth. They are worshipping God as well as they possibly can based on the knowledge and the understanding that they have of the Scriptures. But today we want to discover that the Bible does in fact describe this power, the Roman Catholic Church state as the antichrist power of the Bible. God wants us to know the truth. God is like a surgeon, not a butcher. The word of God is like a two-edged sword, the Bible tells us. And with that two-edged sword, God uses that sword like a surgeon. What does a surgeon do? A surgeon cuts to heal, whereas a butcher cuts to kill. God is a surgeon. He only shares with us that which is truth to keep us away from error. Well, let's take a look at these seven identification marks. And in order for the Roman Catholic Church to be this little horn power or this beast power of Revelation 13, this antichrist power that the Bible speaks of, to be this power, the church must fulfill every single one of those seven identification marks. So let's begin with the first one. We discovered that this little horn power of Daniel 7 comes up amongst the ten kingdoms. That is, it would be located in Western Europe. Is the Vatican, Vatican State, is that located in Western Europe, the home of the Roman Catholic Church? Absolutely. There in Italy. It would come up after the ten kingdoms are established. And indeed, the Roman Catholic Church state received its power and authority as a state as well as a church, a kingdom, after 476 AD. In fact, it began to reign in 538 AD. And it would reign 1260 years or 1260 days, a day representing a year in Bible prophecy, according to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. It would reign for 1260 years and then it would receive a deadly wound. And that took place in 1798 when Napoleon came and he took the Pope captive and put an end to the kingdom of Rome. But God told us that it would resurrect. And that's another story for another day. In Revelation 13, 3, it tells us that the deadly wound would one day be healed and the whole world would marvel and follow this beast power. It would once again grow and rise to, to prominence. We don't have time to unpack that today, but we may do that on another occasion. Thirdly, 
It would be a small Western European kingdom. You remember what we discovered? Daniel 7 says it would be a little horn. Is the Vatican a small kingdom? Absolutely. The Vatican or the Holy See, as it is known, is situated on 108 acres. It is a country in its own right. It receives ambassadors from all around the world and it sends out ambassadors to various nations. Uh, When the Pope travels, he is not only a religious leader, but he is also a political leader. I have had the opportunity of going to the Vatican, to those 108 acres, had the opportunity of going to St. Peter's back in 2010. And um, while I was there, I went to the post office. And there in the post office of the Vatican, I purchased some stamps, stamps that I could send mail out anywhere around the world. Um, so, yeah, the Vatican is is well and truly a country as well as it's a religious power. That is why it's called uh, the Vatican or the Holy See. The Holy See is the church or the religious aspect of this kingdom, and the Vatican is the political aspect of this kingdom. So it's a religio-political power, very unique, very unique. And in fact, uh, well, we'll get to that in just a moment, but the fourth identification mark is that this little horn power would uproot three kingdoms. And indeed, in order to make way for the Church of Rome to not only be a church, but also to be a political power, three opposing powers had to be put out of the way. So the Roman emperors defeated and destroyed the Vandals, the Heruli, and the Ostrogoths in order to make way for the Church of Rome to be a political power. In Rome. Notice one historian, Adolf Harnack, in his book What is Christianity, written in 1901, page 270, and he wrote these words The Roman Church pushed itself into the place of the Roman world empire, of which it is the actual continuation. The Pope, who, cla- who calls himself King and Pontifex Maximus, is Caesar's. Successor. So when the Roman power, when Rome disintegrated, the Roman church or the papal church filled that vacuum and it continued to reign in the place of the Caesars. Point number five, it would speak blasphemy against God. Does the church of Rome speak blasphemy against Against God. Well, what was the definition that the Bible gave us concerning blasphemy? What is blasphemy? The first thing was making oneself equal to God. Does the church claim that the Pope is equal to God? Notice this statement from Ferrari's Ecclesiastical Dictionary. This is an official Catholic dictionary. The Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God, capital G. The Pope is called most holy because he is rightfully presumed to be such. He is likewise the divine monarch and supreme emperor and king of kings. Wow. All these titles, my friend, 
are all in relation to the Pope. Yet these same titles are given in the Bible only concerning God. There is no human being in the Bible that is referred to God as King of Kings or Supreme Emperor or Divine Monarch or Most Holy. Those words, Most Holy, are also spoken of the Pope by political leaders. I remember in 2008 when Pope Benedict visited the United States, George W. Bush referred to him as Holy Father. In that same year in July, the Pope came to Sydney and Australia's Prime Minister at the time, Kevin Rudd, referred to the Pope not once but twice as Your Holiness. So those same attributes are not only given by the Church to the Pope, who the Church believes represents God on earth, God in human flesh, but also political leaders give him that same authority and refer to him in the same way. Secondly, the Bible tells us that blasphemy is claiming the power and the authority to forgive sins. Claiming the power and the authority to forgive sins. Does the Church of Rome claim that it has power and authority to forgive sins? Absolutely. Churches all around the world have confessionals in which priests sit and welcome parishioners who come and confess their sins before the priest, who then offers forgiveness on behalf of God. Notice this statement from the Catholic priest written by Michael Mueller back in 1876. The priest does not only declare that the sinner is forgiven, but he really forgives him. So great is the power of the priest that the judgments of heaven itself are subject to his decision. Wow, what an incredible statement. That what the priest decides, the judgment of the priest is subject. Wow. Subject not only to his decision, but his judgment, heaven approves of. That is an incredible statement. What does the Bible say regarding forgiveness? In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We are not to go to man to ask for forgiveness. We are not to go to man to confess our sins. The Bible is clear. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is not a priest. That is not a pastor. That is not a rabbi. That is not an imam. That is no human being here on planet Earth. The only one that is a mediator between God and man is Jesus Christ. The Bible is absolutely clear. Blasphemy is claiming the prerogatives of God, either making oneself equal to God or claiming the power and authority to forgive sins, which God alone can do. Sadly, my friends, the truth is that the Church of Rome 
claims these two prerogatives. And so it fulfills this description that the Bible gives in Daniel and Revelation and Paul writes off in Second Thessalonians that this power would speak pompous word, would speak blasphemies, would sit in the temple of God claiming to be God. Point number six. We discover that this antichrist power or this little horn power, this beast power, shall persecute God's saints. Has the church of Rome persecuted God's people down through the centuries? Absolutely. It's estimated that up to 50 million Christians, God-loving, Bible-believing Christians, were killed because they were not willing to go along with what the church taught. I've been to many of these places in Western Europe where men and women of God were martyred. Many were burnt at the stake because they were not willing to yield to the errors that the church taught and supported and instituted. This is another statement that I share with you from W.E.H. Leckie in his commentary, The Rise and Influence of the Spirit of Rationalism in Europe. He wrote these words, that the Church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution that has ever existed among mankind will be questioned by no Protestant who has a competent knowledge of history. So it's out there. It's, it's, it's a fact, my friend. It's an absolute fact, and the evidence is there. I have seen the evidence firsthand. I have been to the very place where John Huss, one of those powerful reformers, was burnt alive. The very place is there in, in Europe today. In the year 2000, Pope John Paul II, he asked for forgiveness for the errors and the persecution that the Church of Rome committed in the name of God over the past 2,000 years. That was in the news headlines. Many of you may remember that. That was back in the year 2000. And once again, my friends, we need to, we need to be very clear. I said this earlier and I need to say it again because it is so important. Because the church leadership and those who were in charge at the time committed these terrible atrocities does not indict the precious men and women who are part of this faith commune. The precious men and women that are part of the Roman Catholic Church. As I pointed out, there's over a billion, a billion men and women that claim the Catholic Church as their church. These are lovely and loving men and women. Just because of the things that have happened in the past does not mean that they too are implicated. God here is simply pointing out a system. God is simply here pointing out a power, a power that would seek to oppose him. As we pointed out right at the very outset, a power that the enemy will use as his front man. 
as the enemy will use in order to deceive the whole world into worshipping him through this power. The seventh point and the final point that we want to consider today, this power, this antichrist power, would intend or think to change God's law. We read that in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, and shall intend to change times and law. Notice what the church says it has the power to do. The Pope, and this is from the church itself, the Pope has power to change times, to abrogate laws, and to dispense with all things, even the precepts of Christ. That's hard for you and I to, to, to imagine a statement made like that, that the Pope has power to, to change God's laws, to change God's Ten Commandments. Has the church indeed tampered with God's holy Ten Commandment law that God himself wrote with his very own finger on two tablets of stone? Has that, in fact, taken place? Well, I purchased some time ago um, the Converts Catechism of Catholic Doctrine. You can um, find one in, in, a, in a Roman Catholic church. Uh, bookshop, I guess, or, or, or in other places, or maybe online. And I took a look at the commandments in this catechism, and I discovered that indeed the Church of Rome has changed the commandments. The second commandment that forbids the worship of images, that forbids making images in order to worship them, that has been taken out of the catechism. That has been taken wholeheartedly out. And why is that? Well, sadly, in the church today, you will discover many images and, um, and, and that, that people bow down to and they worship. So how do you deal with that when one commandment is out? Isn't there only like nine? Won't people pick up on that, you may be thinking? Well, what the church has done, the 10th commandment that speaks of coveting thy neighbor's wife, coveting thy neighbor's goods, that has been divided into two. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife is commandment number nine, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods is commandment number ten. So that way you still have ten commandments. When it comes to the fourth commandment, well, that is placed at number three in this particular catechism that I have. And the question is asked, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Okay, we know that Saturday is the seventh day of the week. Saturday is the day of worship. The answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. That's in this Converts Catechism of Catholic Do Doctrine by Reverend Peter Gearman, written in... Um, 1957 originally, but the one that I have is from 1977. Why did the Catholic Church substitute Sunday for Saturday? Answer, the church substituted Sunday for Saturday because Christ rose from the dead on Sunday and the Holy Ghost descended upon the apostles on a Sunday. By what authority? Question, did the church substitute Sunday for Saturday? Answer, the church substituted Sunday for Saturday by the plenitude of that divine power which Jesus Christ has bestowed upon her. 
And so the church is very clear that it has changed God's law. Not only has it taken out one of the commandments, the second commandment, but it has completely changed the commandment dealing with time. Isn't that what Daniel said? And shall intend to change times and law. Tamper with the commandment that specifically deals with time. And there is only one commandment that deals specifically with time, and that is the fourth commandment that speaks of worshiping God the Creator on the seventh day of the week not the first day of the week, Sunday. Now, my friends, what I have shared with you today is not new to me. It's not something recent. This truth was shared by many, many reformers who also believed that this antichrist power of Bible prophecy was none other than the Roman church state. Individuals like Martin Luther, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, John Huss, John Wesley, John Calvin, and a host of others shared what I have shared with you today. My friends, we must make a decision whether we will worship the Creator or whether we will worship the creature. That's what Revelation 14 is all about, worshiping the Creator, Jesus Christ, or worshiping the beast, who ultimately is the front man for the enemy for Satan, who is a created being. So you and I will either choose to worship the creator or to worship the creature. It is my sincere prayer, my dear friend, that you will make a decision to worship Jesus Christ as your creator, that you will worship him in spirit and in truth. For this is what God is inviting all of us to do. It's come time for us to pray and to end our time together So much more can be shared, but hopefully today you have a better idea of what some of the issues are at the end of time and how we can be prepared to meet them. So let's just pause and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your precious truth. We thank you for your word, and we ask and pray that as we hold on to your word, that you will lead and guide us and draw us closer to Jesus, for we only want to worship him in spirit and in truth. Thank you, Lord, for uncovering the enemy's deceptions through your word so that we may be blessed to enjoy truth and to live our lives in the sunshine of truth. Until we meet again, dear Lord, keep us close to you. Keep us in your word. Keep us faithful to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.